the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up, I'll discuss a very important case just went before the Supreme Court on the extreme overreach of the agencies of the federal government. Author and scholar Larry Taunton joins me. He's in Davos. He's at the World Economic Forum. He's going to give us a firsthand report on the goings-on there. And I'll begin my discussion of Eros in C.S. Lewis's classic work, The Four Loves. Hey, if you're watching on Rumble, listening on Apple, Google, or Spotify, please subscribe to my channel. This is the Dinesh D'Souza Show. America needs this voice. The times are crazy. In a time of confusion, division, and lies, we need a brave voice of reason, understanding, and truth. This is the Dinesh D'Souza Podcast. Yesterday, the Supreme Court heard a back and forth, heard arguments in an extremely important case that involves the power of federal agencies make rules, do not make rules, but administer them and regulate them and adjudicate them that control various aspects of our lives, of the corporate sector, of the economy. So the case, although it focuses somewhat narrowly on the issue of fisheries and the marine fisheries um, agency of the government, and um, but the implications stretch to uh, federal regulations in envir- environmental areas, federal regulations over guns, the ATF, the FBI. The think of the kind of plethora of agencies of the federal government, and all of them make detailed rules. And uh, yet, when you look at the congressional statutes that have authorized these agencies. You can very well ask yourself, where did Congress give you the power to do this? And the federal agencies typically reply, well, Congress gave us sort of a general power to, quote, look after the environment or gave us a general power to manage fisheries or gave us a general power to administer law enforcement. And then we took it upon ourselves to have all kinds of technical experts and administrative judges. And then even if people question our, our decisions, what do we do? We refer it to an administrative judge inside of the fisheries department or inside of the ATF. So these people can't even really go to court because when they go to court, uh, the judge will say, well, it's not our job to second guess these federal agencies. This federal regulation, although you can dispute it, is a reasonable interpretation of the broad congressional statute. And so we, the courts, are going to stay out of it. Now, the reason that the courts take this stance, which is you may call it a a, de- a deference to the um, power of the um, administrative agencies is because of a decision going all the way back to 1984 called the Chevron decision. 
The decisions was Chevron versus Natural Resources Defense Council. And the meaning of that decision was that the federal agencies were successfully able to argue to the court that courts should not uh, attempt to adjudicate their rules. Federal agency makes a rule. Let's say, for example, that if your land adjoins a wetland, then the EPA has the right to seize your land or or fine you or um, uh, conduct all kinds of operations on your land, whether or not you agree to it. And it's because even though your land is not a wetland, it, quote, adjoins a wetland. All right. So that's that would be an example of a rule. And then a guy gets, let's say, fined for uh, for some EPA rules on his property. And his property is near a wetland, but doesn't actually touch the wetland. So the guy sues and he goes, hey, uh, adjoins doesn't mean that uh, adjoins means that my land is actually on the wetland or it is so connected to the wetland that the government can't regulate the wetland without regulating what's happening on my property. But my property happens to be half a mile away. And yet, in their view, it does adjoin the wetland because the same kind of birds fly over both properties and in the past, citing Chevron, the court would rule, well, I guess we can all disagree over the meaning of the term adjoins, uh, and we think that the EPA's interpretation is reasonable because exactly wildlife and um, so on exist on both properties. The one is not sort of separated from the other in terms of an ecosystem. So we're, we're going to let the EPA decide whatever it wants. This is what this is really the issue that went before the Supreme Court. And what happened with these fisheries guys is that there is a rule that says that the government uh, can require uh, EPA administrators, uh, researchers to go along on these fisheries expedition to study these um, uh, fish patterns and to study oceanic currents and so on. And the fisheries guys weren't even objecting to that. But the government decided that the fisheries groups would have to pay for it. And so not only do they have to sort of take along these researchers and these government guys with them, but they've got to pay, I forget the number, it's something like $700 a day to cover the government expense of these guys. So it's just essentially a sort of a tax uh, that is being stuck onto the fisheries guys. And it's all based upon a rule that interprets a broad statute to mean essentially that the fisheries guys can decide whatever they want. They can impose any kinds of rules. And as somebody said, um, uh, a comment in the, in the, in the, in the process of this litigation, they said, well, we, the little guy, have no power against these agencies. Why? Because they make whatever rules they want. And when it goes before a court, they just cite Chevron. Ah. So this is why the Chevron precedent was right up before the court. And I heard Judge Katanji Jackson making what was probably the best point for the government, for the Biden administration, for the left. The left, let's remember, is the party of government. They want government to have more power. And she's like, well, listen, these federal agencies rely on expertise. If you're dealing, for example, with the airline administration, the, the FAA, you know, they need to know. They know a lot about planes. They know a lot about what goes wrong. If they make a rule that involves some bolt or some type of screw or something that affects the landing gear, do you want someone going to court and some judge who went to law school but knows nothing about airplanes saying, well, that's a bad rule. I'm going to strike that rule down. Um, no, we should defer to the expertise of these agencies 
because they know what they are doing. And it'll be chaos if you let courts, and remember, there are many courts. One court can go here, another court can go over there. So this was Judge Katanji Jackson's point. But it was countered by Gorsuch uh, and by other conservatives on the court who said, in effect, first of all, this whole idea that these agency rules are based upon expertise, no. Many times these rules are punitive, they're ideological. Like, for example, what expertise does it take to tell a fishery guy, you got to pay $700 a day? What kind of administrative genius is involved there? No, they're just trying to screw the fisheries, guys. They're just trying to take advantage of them, make them pay because they have the power to do it. In a sense, this is like arbitrary power because it's who gave you you're not the legislative branch who gave you this kind of authority who allowed you to reach into somebody else's pocket and take money out of it so this is the point that we're not dealing here with airline safety we're not dealing here with any kind of expertise we're dealing with arbitrary impositions of power often at the expense of the little guy second while it seems that a federal agency making a rule The rule would be stable. You wouldn't have multiple courts taking different positions left and right on it. Uh, It turns out that no, these agencies change their mind all the time. First of all, they always change their mind when there's a new administration. And so the rule is interpreted one way, and then in comes a Democratic administration. They decide, no, we want to interpret the rule much more expansively. Look at the way, for example, immigration policy is interpreted under Trump versus interpreted under Biden. So this is not a case where the rules involving border apprehensions and so on are somehow very stable. On the contrary, the Biden administration turned the Trump rules on their head and essentially made a creative interpretation of immigration law that basically says if somebody wants asylum, um, that means that they can stay in the United States for, you know, a year, two years, maybe five years. Maybe we'll never find them, but we let them go uh, pending their court date for which they may or may not show up. Where's the where's the great technical expertise that led to this decision? There is none. It's just an ideological decision. And so the point being, Gorsuch's point, that no, uh, it is the job of the court to make sure this is part of the the checks and balances of government. We have a legislative branch. They make rules. Now, they're allowed to delegate to these federal agencies certain administrative enforcements. But the administrative agencies are not themselves directly accountable to anyone. Um, and, and so they take a broad rule. They run off with it. And the court goes, if somebody sues... It is very much the job of the court to look and see, wait a minute, was, is there an underlying legal justification for what you're doing? Or are you just taking a broad sanction and making up the rules as you go along to the disadvantage of citizens and industries? Um, that get badly hurt by what you do. And then they can't even go to court because you say, hey, you can appeal, but you know what? We have an administrative judge inside the ATF. Or we have an administrative judge inside the EPA. I mean, think of it. These are EPA officials playing that role. They're obviously going to be hugely biased in favor of the agency. Uh, and this is the way these federal agencies have had it. They've had a, a sweetheart deal for 40 years. I think the good news, it's not a done deal because it seemed like Roberts and Amy Coney Barrett did have some fears of what might happen if courts, in a sense, are second guessing these agencies all the time. But I think it's fair to say that by 
at least five to four, if not by six to three, we're going to see the Chevron decision. At least this is my sense listening to the tenor of the arguments. The decision won't come until June, but I think it's going to be a good decision. Uh, and this, the Chevron precedent, a very bad precedent that has expanded the, you can say, unchecked exercise of it, of, of the power of these federal administrative agencies. It looks like the Chevron precedent is going to go down. I recently read an article that said 84% of New Year's resolutions fail in the first six weeks. It got me thinking about PhD weight loss and nutrition and why it's been such a success for Debbie and me. Well, we haven't gained any weight ever since our big weight loss. 27 pounds for me, 24 for Debbie. But according to this article, most people blame their failure on lack of time, lack of motivation, loss of zeal. So as I was reading, I can see clearly why we were successful on the program. It's because they make it simple. It doesn't take a lot of extra time. They're masters of motivation. You have a team of coaches by your side the whole time, and you don't lose your zeal because every week you make great strides, you're excited, you want to move forward. So don't make getting healthy another New Year's resolution fail this year. Call PhD Weight Loss and Nutrition. Make 2024 your year. Here's the number to call, 864-644-1900 to get started. You can also go online at myphdweightloss.com. Don't do this alone. The number again to call. Here we go, 864-644-1900. Debbie and I started taking Relief Factor three years ago, and we have seen a huge difference in our joints. Really nothing short of amazing Aches and pains are totally gone thanks to this 100% drug-free solution called Relief Factor. It's a natural way to fight pain. Relief Factor is a daily supplement. It helps your body fight back against pain. It's 100% drug-free. It was developed by doctors searching for a better alternative for pain. Relief Factor uses a unique formula of natural ingredients like turmeric, omega-3s to help reduce or eliminate the everyday aches and pains that you're experiencing. So whether it's neck pain, back pain, joint or muscle pain, Relief Factor can help you feel better. Unlike pills that simply mask your pain for a short time, Relief Factor helps to support your body's natural response to inflammation. So you feel better all day, every day. See how Relief Factor can help you? Here's what you should try. The three-week quick start kit. It's only $19.95. It comes with Relief Factor's feel better or your money back guarantee. So what do you have to lose? Visit relieffactor.com or call, here's the number, 800-4-RELIEF. Again, it's 800-4-RELIEF or go to relieffactor.com and you feel the difference. You know it works. Guys, you've probably been hearing about the World Economic Forum that's been going on in Davos. I believe it ends today. And our friend Larry Taunton is there or was there. Uh, Larry Taunton is an author. He's a columnist. He's a cultural commentator. His work has been covered by the BBC, the New York Times. He's written books. Many years ago, Larry sponsored a debate that I uh, was involved in with Christopher Hitchens over the issue of God. You can follow Larry on X at Larry Taunton, T-A-U-N-T-O-N. Larry, thanks for joining me once again. Uh, you are now in London, but you were just in Davos at the World Economic Forum. Let me start by asking you, uh, why would, uh, what was your purpose in heading to Davos? Did you want to sort of check things out on the scene? What was your reason for being there? Yeah, great question, Dinesh. Um, I was there this morning. And, um, you know, listen, 70% of the WEF is online, you know, so you don't need a guy like me there to tell you what John Kerry said or uh, Javier Malai or 
or uh, um, you know some of the the various more than sixty heads of state, you know who are there. So the major plenary sessions are mostly online, but it's that other thirty percent that I think is very interesting, and it's the twenty eight hundred attendees uh, who are there, and I, I really think that's the important part. And so, in a sense, Dinesh, I'm a little bit of a mole there because they just assume I'm a weffer. They just assume I'm like like them. And the result of that is that they talk very openly of the agenda. It's, I mean, listen, we, you, you were just speaking of debating Christopher Hitchens, and as you know, I debated him as well. And part of the part of the purpose that both of us had in that it wasn't just the public part; it was the private part and getting to know him. And I kind of wanted to get into the mindset of these people. Who are they? And, and how do they think about these issues? Let's talk about who um, speaks at these events and who attends them. So um, many years ago, this is about 20 years ago. This is when I was, um, I was at the American Enterprise Institute. So actually the very late 1990s. Uh, and a woman with a briefcase marched into my office and said, you know, I'm an official with the World Economic Forum, and uh, we uh, want to invite you to come to our next meeting. And at the time, I just ba- barely heard of it, but they wanted to have at that po- time a debate about is Western civilization a good idea? And so they had teamed me up with the former Israeli Prime Minister Shimon Peres, and then there was a leftist academic named Benjamin Barber, and uh, also the black Nobel laureate Wale Soyinka. So we had this debate, two against two. Um, and uh, so I went to Davos. I was actually in the agenda of the program. I was able to go to cu- a couple of these really pretty remarkable private luncheons. Uh, and my lunch, believe it or not, was with Arafat. So it was a kind of window <laughs> into this kind of world of Davos, so to speak. And then there was a big audience of about 300 people at our debate and sitting in the first uh, uh, um Roe was the queen of Sweden, and then there were all these sort of luminary types. But I, I never figured out, like, who gets invited? How do you get to come to this? Do you buy a ticket like you do to Wimbledon? Do you know? How, how, who are these Who are these 2,800 people that you describe <laughs> to attend these events? How do they get you there? Know, you know, Dinesh, um, I, I, it was Arafat wearing a, a, uh, a little name tag that said, uh, hi, I'm Yasser. I mean, cause, cause he did in the naked gun. I'm just, I'm just curious. I mean, cause you were there. Uh, listen, the, uh, to go to the, to the World Economic Forum, um, you have to be, that is to say their annual meeting, you have to be a WEF member. And they say WEF. You know, that's the way they refer to it as the WEF. Oh, so are WEF is of, World Economic Forum. That's right. They, are you part of the WEF? Um, that's, that's kind of the insider language. And um, you have to be a member of the WEF, and then you have to pay the conference fees. And, and together, that can be into six figures. I mean, it's very, very expensive to be a part of it. So it's not just the, the billionaires, you know, who fly in on their private jets, but even the attendees have to be some people of some, some material means uh, to attend that, or at least be backed by a company or something uh, that has those material means. I didn't pay any of that. I just go and I just boldly walk into these meetings as though I own the place. And it's, it's interesting to dash because almost no one ever challenges you, you know, when you do that. So I'm able to sit in on a number of these meetings. As for who gets invited, you can apply, but there's no guarantee that you'll be allowed to attend. 
I mean, I remember, again, thinking back to that, you know, you referred to the Arafat lunch. They had given me a, a menu, a sort of a choice. Would you like to go to the lunch with Michael Dell? Would you like to go to the lunch with, like, Bill Gates? And I thought to myself, well, chances are I can meet Michael Dell in some tech conference in the United States or Bill Gates. But where the heck am I going to meet Arafat? Like, where will I be yeah. able to hear this guy sounding off, you know? And this, of course, let's remember, was before 9-11. Arafat was, in fact, the global face of terrorism in those days. Uh, and yet he had been given a certain type of respectability because, you know, he represents the Palestinians. Yeah. You know, he's the one negotiating with Menachem Begin. And, and later so, the Nobel Peace Prize. And uh, exactly. So um, now let's talk about the psychology underlying the WEF, the World Economic Forum, because it looks like there is a shared ethos. In other words, the the Hitchens Dinesh debate is not likely to occur <laughs> because their debate is within certain accepted parameters. So what is the, is there a kind of a underlying ideology of the World Economic Forum? People sometimes use the phrase globalism. Is that who these people are? Yeah, another great question, Dinesh. Um, that really is the part that fascinates me. Again, so much of what is being said in the sessions, you can watch that online or you can see that it's being covered often dishonestly in major media, but nonetheless being covered uh, to some extent, um, I think it's it's interesting that you're referring to you know the God debates, you know the ones that we did with Dawkins and with Hitchens and Shermer and Daniel Dennett and all that kind of stuff because that stuff was going on in a big way about a decade ago, uh, and now it's as though these people are implementing that ideology, meaning they that the the public debate on God has moved on a notch to where they just kind of assume there isn't one. And so the result is that it's as if these are people who look at, say, Orwell or or Huxley and see it as a as a how-to manual. Uh, there aren't really any debates over religion or and they don't really debate anything. In 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 fact, the the thing that I thought was quite fascinating in, in engaging the Weffers, and you're generally talking about, I'm just talking about the attendees, not necessarily, although I did have an interesting conversation with Theresa May, former prime minister of the um of the UK. But it reminds me, Dinesh, of the the kind of conversations that we might have today on a university campus or on a high school where their feelings trump your truth. And, um, and where the shared ethos is shared to such an extent that when a guy like me is in their midst and begins to push back just a little bit, there, there's a collective sense of we don't actually even know how to answer his questions or even how to respond to them. So I thought it was, I thought it was very interesting that the, um, the president of the European Commission said, you know, their, their primary mission for the next two years is, um, dealing with, misinformation and disinformation. And then they went on to talk about how um, X, Twitter, is um, is such a toxic place. It was obvious to me just being there that it's, it's almost like my conversations with them kind of recreated for them their feelings about Twitter because I was a toxic presence. Why? Because I didn't share that ethos. You see, so they don't really even know how to engage you on the question, and they don't want to. 
They, they don't want to have debates. They don't want to have discussions. They don't want to have disagreement. There can be no dissent. So the shared ideology is utterly secular in nature. It's utterly godless, and it's fundamentally anti-human. Let's come right back, and I'm going to ask you, Larry, about whatever happened to the the concept of relativism, because we, for for decades, we kept hearing that truth is relative, and, and yet somehow now you have people solemnly declaring this is misinformation, whereas I thought it was the case that ideas and truth were relative to the person who was perceiving them. Uh, I'm going to ask you. Uh, I must. I'm going to ask you that when we come back. Okay, sounds like a great question. As we roll toward the 2024 presidential election, one thing to be sure of, it's going to be pretty tumultuous. So how will your money, your hard-earned savings fare during this time? You already see the impact of inflation at the pump, the grocery store, the dollar continues to lose buying power quicker than wages can increase. So what are you doing to protect your savings? Well, consider diversifying with gold from Birch Gold Group. For decades, gold has been the choice of investors and central banks to hedge against inflation. Now you can own gold in a tax-sheltered IRA with the help of Birch Gold. Just text Dinesh to 989898. Birch Gold will send you a free information kit on gold. They'll help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into an IRA in gold you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Debbie and I have taken advantage of this offer. You should too. With an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, thousands of satisfied customers, including me and Debbie, you can trust Birch Gold. So go ahead, text Dinesh to 989898 for your free information kit. Once again, text Dinesh to 989898 now. Mike Lindell and the employees of MyPillow want to thank my listeners for all your continued support. So to thank you, he's having an overstock clearance sale right now for the best prices ever when you use promo code Dinesh and you get free shipping on your entire order. So get 50% off the MyPillow 2.0 and the brand new flannel sheets. They just arrived. They won't last long. Get the six-piece, six-pack towel set for only $29.98. Take advantage of free shipping on larger items like mattresses and mattress toppers. They're 100% made in the USA on sale for as low as $99.99. Everything is on sale. The kitchen towels, they've got the same technology, by the way, as the bath towels that actually absorb. You got dog beds, blankets, couch pillows, and so much more. So get the best specials ever. Go to MyPillow.com. Use promo code Dinesh or you can call 800-876-0227. That number again, 800-876-0227. You got to use promo code Dinesh. Uh, to take advantage of it, but uh, you'll also get free shipping on your entire order while supplies last. I'm back with our friend Larry Taunton. You can follow him on X at Larry Taunton. He's an author. He's a columnist. He's a cultural commentator, and he has just arrived in London. In fact, I think, Larry, I'm catching you in your hotel room. We just got there from Switzerland, where you were at the World Economic Forum. And the question I was asking you at the end was of the last segment was simply this, that the left has sort of been emphasizing the notion that truth is relative, that you cannot assert absolute truths. And yet suddenly that relativism of the past several decades appears to be chucked out the window and the left is now asserting that this is true. Basically what we say is true, what they say is true. And any rival view is either misinformation or disinformation. Yeah, exactly, Dinesh. Um, I think they still 
are in the business of relativizing truth, all truth except those that are important to them. So the result is that they've recreated, in a sense, the Roman pantheon. Uh, you know, you can believe what you want to believe. Hey, we'll we'll put your gods in our in our uh, God Hall of Fame. Yeah, you can worship that too. Um, they they want to relativize everything, but everyone must worship the state. That is to say, the super state that they would create the the globalist uh, vision which they have cast for themselves. And and so it was in in Roman times, of course, as you well know, relativize all truths, but everyone must acknowledge the absolute truth of the state. And see, they see themselves as the arbiters of truth. I mean, for the the year of the um president of the European Commission, um, Ursula von der Leyen, to say that they're addressing misinformation and disinformation, which in and of itself is is Orwellian doublespeak, it also implies that they're the arbiters of truth. I mean, we're the ones who will decide what is truth. And, uh, you know, they're, they're not about the protection of free speech. They free, see free speech as toxic, uh, but they want to protect their own free speech. I mean, when I was there a couple of decades ago, I didn't see it in these sort of dark terms. I basically yeah. thought, look, this is a kind of a uh, luxurious get together of elites from all over the world to bloviate at each other, exchange ideas, have some entertaining uh, repartee back and forth. So it's sort of put on a show. Uh, and of course, it's a very profitable show for Klaus Schwab, the guy who runs it all. But now what I detect out of it in listening to people is something that I, that's much more creepy, uh, a sort of a guardians of the universe mentality. Like somehow this... And I'm going to call it fascist because it's a sort of a collaboration between government uh, instrumentalities and titans of industry. So that's the classic uh, fascist collaboration. It's sort of like we, the people who run the world, have have gotten here to decide how we can do a better job of running it together. Uh, am, I, am I wrong in detecting this kind of uh, uh, idea that, that these people think of themselves as... Um, Living life for the rest of us? Yeah, well, you know, you may recall the remarks of John Kerry last year where he said that they had a, he said an almost, and he didn't, he, he didn't go so far as to say God, he said an extraterrestrial um, mission. We've been, we've been appointed by extraterrestrials uh, uh, to, to fulfill this kind of divine mission of ours. I mean, there is that kind of creepiness, but but no, something you said right there is is absolutely right. The the World Economic Forum, for the most part, the presentations, most of the people are listening to us would not find them objectionable. I mean, for instance, you know, I, I crash a meeting with the former prime minister of Britain and the former prime minister of Portugal. I, you know, the CEO of Hewlett Packard talking about how they want to end human trafficking. I mean, we're all in favor of that, right? It, there might be another presentation on agriculture and another one here on, you know, coping with stress in the business place and that sort of thing. But the way I, I think of it is kind of like that final scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, you chose poorly, you know, where there's there's the real grail and then it's surrounded by all these fake grails that could kill you. Except here it's in the inverse. It, they hide their real anti-human agenda, the the, the, the deadly bit, 
with all of this other stuff that sounds really, really good, I mean, for the most part, the WEF feels like the kind of conference your employer might have required you to go to that felt kind of meaningless and and uh, and full of platitudes, but didn't really offend you. That's the way most of the WEF is. But at its core, it's fundamentally anti-human. And, and, and let me add this. Some people read too much into the fact that they might invite somebody like Javier Malai or a Georgia Maloney or a, or a Trump or a, uh, an Elon Musk. They're happy to do that because they're clever enough in their marketing. They want to give the impression that they are listening to dissenting voices. So they'll give a stage to someone like that, but they they're absolutely are not <laughs> listening to those dissenting voices. And you're also 100% correct that they are fascists. They're not Marxists. They're fascists. Yeah, I mean, I think that the interesting thing about it is they are very statist on the one hand, but on the other hand, they talk incessantly about innovation, about new discoveries, about the future being so different and so much better than the past, and yet they, at the same time, downplay the invigorated private sector that produces those innovations. In other words, they seem to think that these innovations come through some kind of stage management by the state. But of course, the state doesn't invent anything. It doesn't make any innovations. What is what is an innovation that has been made in the area of, let's say, energy exploration by the Department of Energy? Nil. Uh, And and that's a a generic point I'm making. So how do you think that they see the compatibility between the statism on the one hand and this sort of vigorous entrepreneurial innovation that they celebrate on the other? Um, You know, I I don't know, because I think they see the state chiefly as a as an instrument of popular coercion. I don't know that they're too worried about it. Uh, as an instrument of innovation. I don't think they really care in that regard. What they do care about uh, and what what they what really kind of gives them these these uh um you know almost religious responses to things, um cult-like responses is they get all excited about digital IDs and mass surveillance and you know being able to vaccinate the entire world and reducing the global population and that kind of stuff and they see the state as the as the chief means of doing it and therefore you know the old you know the old uh definition that i was given you know years ago as an uh, undergraduate was that the fascism is strict regimentation of the economy for war but in this case is for war against domestic populations so that's what esg is and they they get all excited about those kinds of things because they they see the state as in an industry as weapons to be used against people like us. I mean, they seem to, to get almost unnaturally excited about what was being called disease X. It's almost like now, you know, in a different context, at a medical conference, if somebody said, let's, you know, we handled this pandemic very poorly. Let's plan to do better next time. Let's have a discussion about a hypothetical pandemic with a 20% fatality rate. 
I don't have an objection to that in principle, but I have an objection to these guys because it looks to me like they're salivating over the next pandemic. They're looking for it as a pretext of even greater governmental control. It's almost like they said, you know, these these rebels got out from under us with the last one and a lot of people did not take the vaccine. They didn't listen to our authority. How can we do better in keeping the peasants in line next time around? Wasn't that the under Underlying thrust, yeah, yeah, it is. And uh, you know, another thing that I found very striking about the left is, even in presentations that had nothing to do with vaccinations, vaccinations would come up, but always in a positive way. There was there was never any discussion or hint that anyone had ever questioned or pushed back on vaccines. That I thought was interesting. I mean, you're having a public discussion about vaccinations, and you think somewhere in the presentation there would be. Something about the fact that, um, you know, there's some strong scientific evidence to suggest that they really weren't all that successful. It might have even caused an awful lot of harm. That never comes up. So uh, the, the, the unity that you, that you spoke of in terms of their, their ethos is such that even on a, on a topic like that where you're waiting for them to at least acknowledge dissent, they don't do it. Well, Larry, I appreciate your being there and uh, checking in with us to give us a report. I mean, these are people you're tempted to dismiss them and laugh at them, but they do represent a very powerful enclave of people from all over the world. They, When they say that they have a lot of decision-making power, they actually do. And they're working yes. together in concert at this, uh, at this conference. Uh, we've been talking to Larry Taunton. You can follow him on X, at Larry Taunton. Larry, thanks for joining me. Hey, it's been great to be with you, Dinesh. With each year that passes, the term health goals takes on more and more importance. For Debbie and me in our younger days, feeling great, feeling healthy was just something we took for granted. But now it's become an active goal in our life. And that means we do specific things to help us get there. One of those things we do every day right here, balance of nature, fruits and veggies in a capsule. Now, why did we choose Balance of Nature? Well, many reasons, but probably one of the most important is that they are always made from whole food ingredients. If you start getting more serious about your health goals like we have, I strongly urge you to check out Balance of Nature. Whether you order online, call them direct, you got to use the promo code AMERICA and you'll get 35% off the special offer. Here's the number to call, 800-246-8751. Once again, it's 800-246-8751. Or you can go to balanceofnature.com. When you use promo code AMERICA, you'll get 35% off your order. I've been discussing C.S. Lewis's classic work, The Four Loves, and we've covered two of them. First one is affection or storgy. The second one is philia or friendship. And today launch into the third one, which is Eros. Now, I don't know if you've seen uh, pictures of C.S. Lewis, but the ones I've seen, generally from his Oxford and Cambridge days, now you've got this guy and he's a rumpled fellow with an overcoat and kind of a tweed jacket. He's got a scarf and he's typically sporting a pipe. And right away you go... This guy going to tell me about Eros. This this is the guy I'm going to be listening to on this subject. And so it comes with some surprise that Lewis actually knows what he's talking about and is able to apply the same sort of gentle but critical lens 
to this type of love that he does to the others. Once again, he is going to give us what he does characteristically well, which is close observation, uh, very good comparisons and contrasts. And what he's trying to get at is, what is the peculiar nature of Eros? I mean, it's not something we think about, because we use so many terms, love, desire, passion, lust, kind of somewhat interchangeably. The only difference in general and common usage is that one is sort of has a somewhat bad, lust has a bad odor. But what about desire? Is that bad? What about passion? Is that bad or good? Um, uh, what about love itself? Which, what does it refer to? So there's a lot of kind of foggy ambiguity surrounding all this. And Lewis's point is that it makes it difficult for us to do any kind of, not just moral evaluation, but even aesthetic evaluation. Here, this is how he begins. By eros, I mean, of course, the state which we call being in love. Now, right there, Lewis is um, tapping into something, I think, pretty interesting. He doesn't seem all that conscious of it, but there's a difference between kind of love and being in love. So what is this weird phrase, being in love? Because it doesn't apply to other things. If you look at the other types of love, you wouldn't say, well, I'm in affection. You're like, no, I, I kind of like the guy. I have an affection for him. Or I'm his friend. You wouldn't say, I am in friendship. So why do we say I am in love? It appears to be some kind of a unique state peculiar to this type of love. Lewis knows this, and that's why he's starting there. And he says, I'm going to talk about this state, this state of being uh, in love. And he says, we have to realize right away that this state is not the same as sexual desire or human sexuality. In other words, being in love is something different. It may encompass sexuality or sexual desire, but it's not identical with it. Now, why is that? He says because, um, he goes, a lot of people think, for example, that uh, being in love and romantic desire are, are necessarily united the one with the other. And of course, this is true. If you ask someone, would you marry someone with whom you are not in love? They'll go, no, I won't. That. And so they seem to think, most people seem to think in this culture, that um, that romantic love, the feeling of being in love, and let's say getting married, having children, all of this is like the same thing. Um, and Lewis goes, that's really not true. And it's not true historically, it's not true in other cultures, it's not even true in Western culture, and hasn't been true for, for thousands of years. Here's Lewis. He goes, the times and places in which marriage depends on Eros are in a small minority. Most of our ancestors were married off in early youth to partners chosen by their parents on grounds that had nothing to do with Eros. Uh, they went on to act with no other fuel, so to speak, than plain animal desire. Then unexpectedly, Lewis goes, and they did right. Honest Christian husbands and wives obeying their fathers and mothers, discharging to one another their so-called marriage debt, bringing up families with the fear of the Lord. So this is where Lewis's sort of historical knowledge comes in and is very useful, because it's kind of a natural corrective to contemporary assumptions that are based very often on unthought premises. We got to be like this. It must have been like this forever. People always thought like this. 
No, they didn't always think like this. And, and because they didn't always think like this, we have to ask, what is it about kind of our way of being that makes us think this way? Now, Lewis goes right on to say that there is nothing about uh, Eros that inherently uh, makes it a kind of superior uh, selector for marriage. Uh, and he goes on to say, listen, uh, we have seen the, the kind of uncontrolled power of Eros in our society. He's talking really about the middle of the 20th century, but we could say even more today, how kind of Eros unchecked, Eros untamed, goes in like crazy directions. Um, he, Lewis refers to adultery, breaking a wife's heart, deceiving a husband, betraying a friend, polluting hospitality, deserting your children. So Lewis is right into the thick of it already, just in like page two. He, you can see right now that he's, he's going to be discussing romance, but he's not going to give, you could call it the romantic view of romance. By the romantic view here, I mean the view of the romantic movement, that Eros was some kind of a sacrament, that, that romantic desire has like such an elevated feeling. It's so powerful, so noble, so good, that sort of nothing can come in its way. You remember when I talked um, many weeks ago in, about Dante's Inferno in Canto Five? we have Paolo and Francesca, and Francesca, in explaining love to Dante, and Dante is a very captive audience, he goes, love that absolves no one from loving. And I can't control it. It's, it's, uh, it's not even me. It's, it's like love took a hold of me. Uh, I'm a captive to love. So Francesca's point is you can't really blame me. And if you look at Francesca's tone, it's very interesting, and it's in fact different from some of the other sinners. It's very defiant. It isn't even something like, "Well, I, you know, I fell, I made a mistake, I, you know, I, I shouldn't have listened." None of that. It's more like, "Who are you to question love itself? Uh, love is so ennobling, so powerful, so su such a lofty human impulse that surrendering it to it." pretty much under any circumstances, must be the right and good and true thing to do. And this was exactly the perspective of the Romantic movement. And Lewis is going to go along with this way of feeling up to a point. So Lewis is not one of those guys who is going to step back and start attacking Romantic love or questioning Eros and saying, always be suspicious of it. He doesn't take in that sense the sort of puritanical view, at least the view that we identify with the puritanical view, which is essentially highly skeptical of love itself, of Eros itself. Lewis agrees. Eros is, in fact, powerful. It is, in fact, good. And he even thinks that in certain ways it is godlike. But godlike is not the same thing as being divine. Godlike means that there's a certain at least outward resemblance to the divine. He goes, this is really why human beings are so tempted to surrender wholly to it. But Lewis is going to show why that is not a good idea, that we should appreciate the real power of Eros and yet recognize that Eros doesn't really control itself. It needs to be controlled. Now, it doesn't need to be controlled by, like, law or discipline, or it doesn't need to be controlled necessarily by suppression. It needs to be controlled, Lewis will argue, and this, I think, is the beauty of this chapter, needs to be controlled by the other types of love. 
In other words, the way to fix eros, if you will, is not to give into it entirely, to recognize that it's a good thing, it has its place, it's a very important part of human happiness, while not being human happiness itself, um, and um, and it needs to be sort. It needs to incorporate uh, all the other three types of love to reach its own fulfillment. Lewis is going to argue, and I'll pick this up in subsequent days. I'm going to devote three or four days, I think, to this topic of eros. Maybe two days. I don't know. Um, Lewis is going to argue that eros ultimately always promises what it can't deliver. And this is really a key point. I mean, think about some guy you meet or some woman married like five times. Every single time, this time it's the right one. This time, I really found it this time. So Lewis is saying that that is in fact the right way to talk because, because there is something about Eros that demands a permanence, demands the eternal, if you will. But then look, what's the consequence? How many people actually carry it through till death do us part? Not that many people. So many relationships dissolve and break up. And what happened to the Eros? And how come it didn't? It couldn't uh, deliver on its promises? This is Lewis's point. Eros inherently promises these things and then very frequently fails to produce them. Subscribe to the Dinesh D'Souza podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Or watch on Rumble, YouTube, and SalemNow.com. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.